We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's good, everybody? Before we get into today's episode, I am jacked up for this one. I have a very special guest, but we'll get to them in one second because we got a roll call, brother, brother. Members of the Patreon, Nick Chavez, Christopher Velasquez, Daniel Gibson, Derek Platees, Devin Rendon, Jake Powers, Ryan Pisner, KJH, Corey Johnson Hoops, and Mike Wozniak. Thank you for your monthly contributions to the Patreon. Also, staying with the theme of the Patreon, Alexander Salim. You're a legend. Congrats. You won the VM Crew Neck giveaway for all the members of the Patreon in the $10 tier and higher, I picked your name out of a hat, brother, brother. So get in touch with me. Slide into my DMs wherever you find the DMs. Feet first. You know how we like it. Set the tone nice and early. So my guest today is David Hill. David Hill is the author of the book called Vapors. He is a freelance writer. He is a content creator. He is the host of the podcast Gamblers, which is on the Ringer Podcast Network. Yes, that Ringer. He joins the show. I've had him on once before. David's done a lot for me personally and for the brand. Always looks out for me. Shouts to him. I was so happy to have him on. We've been setting up this podcast for a couple of months now. We finally got to link up and we talk about how he started with sports betting and his passion for sports betting the misconceptions of the legalization of sports betting, the pros and cons of it, the future of sports betting, how it's legal in about a third of the states in the United States, and only three states have not introduced a bill yet for the legalization of sports betting. So as you guys know, it's a super big passion of mine. He's the one who wrote the Esquire piece about me, which then led to the sports betting documentary, which I'm going to link at the description of the bio to see me featured in it. Basically, I was in a sports betting documentary about the legalization of mobile sports betting in New York State and got some really good feedback. And I mean, at its core, it's because of David and a big fan of his work. Love his podcast. We touch it all on this one and also i did a six pack with david which was really really interesting the six packs guys those are patreon exclusives those are getting longer and longer every time because we sort of you know there's no video for that because it's an extra step of editing so to just pull the curtain back a little bit i turn off the lights and it gets like really dark in here and then we kind of get lost in conversation man and and from the members of the patreon and some of the fans that listen to the six packs 
every single guest has done one and they're really cool they're really deep so check those out much love to david hill once again it's at david hill 77 on twitter and yeah sit back relax and enjoy the podcast Yes, what's good, everybody? Welcome back to Veterans Minimum. I'm your host, Nick Day. It's at the Lame Shows where you can find me. I have a very special guest, a returning guest, but a first time in studio guest. My guy, David Hill. David, what's, what's going on, man? What's up, man? So it's so good to be here. After you know, I watch your show on YouTube, and now I'm here. I'm like in the room where it happens. It's cool. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. You've uh, you've helped me out a lot on this, in this journey, man. And uh, first of all, I want to say thank you for that. And we connected couple of years ago now when you did that piece for esquire magazine about sports betting being legalized in new jersey new york area and yeah man i just want to kind of i've been really giving people their flowers to use that expression while they're here and uh once again from the bottom of my heart man i appreciate all that you've done for me even though you might think you haven't done much but it means a lot to me well that's nice of you to say i appreciate it and honestly that that piece that i wrote for esquire i mean you helped me just as much i mean you know, it was a challenging piece because uh, I had to find people. I, most of the people I f- wrote about in that piece, I found them by just harassing them on the platform, <laughs> the train, and hoping they would talk to me. And luckily, like because you were somebody who I got connected with beforehand, you were you were able to kind of you know spend more time with me, walk me through a lot of stuff, you know. And so you were actually very helpful too, as well. So you know, I'm glad that if it paid off for you, you know, that means that uh, it was win-win, you know. <laughs> yeah, the there was a sports doc, uh, betting documentary that just released um, Snapcall Media. These uh, guys from Toronto, Dave, uh, sorry, Dan and Matt reached out to me and they used that piece from your article. And how that how did that come about? The the whole the article and you diving into that area of New Jersey, New York, the legalization of it. Yeah, I think we talked about this a little bit last time I was on your show, but I, I had written a piece um, for The Ringer about a guy named Spanky. Uh, Spanky's like one of the top sports bettors in America. You know, he's um, he's a huge sharp player. You know, he pumps a lot of money through a lot of different books around the world. And um, and uh, I had written, I profiled him. You know, the, the, um, the Ringer had initially asked if I would write something about how New Jersey, how gambling in New Jersey, sports gambling in New Jersey was going to affect like bookies or whatever. But um, but what I found, you know, I wanted to tell this other story because I didn't think that it was really going to have much of an impact on bookies. Um, and I thought it'd be more interesting to th- talk about how it was impacting gamblers, right? And at the time, Spanky was going through this thing where he was um, uh, getting kicked out of all the books in New Jersey, right? Like no one was letting him bet because he was winning. And he was kind of, you know, on a war path about it. So I wanted to write about him. And and it took me some time to get, I'm telling you the whole Spanky story or whatever, but like it took him some time to to trust me. But then once he decided he was, he trusted me and he was interested in doing the story, uh, not to promote him so much, but to kind of get the word out about how, how much these sports books, like, you know, 
didn't let people win. He ended up, uh, we ended up doing this thing where he gave me like 150k in cash and sent me out to the uh, casinos to um, to bet to see how quickly I'd get kicked out if I won. That's a lot of trust to just give you. No shit, I know. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing sitting in my hotel room with this literally a backpack filled with cash, and uh, it's funny because when he first gave me the bag and 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 because he's banned, he can't even walk in these places, right? So he gives it to me on the boardwalk. He like snaps some pictures of me and texts them to his friends, and he's like, "I just gave this stranger hundred and fifty k." Crazy. But um, but yeah. So I wrote this story, and the story, you know, did well. And I think that uh, it what it did was it, it it you know every other publication out there that was looking for a story about New Jersey sports betting started reaching out to me saying hey can you write something for us because nobody really you know a lot of places wanted a story but didn't know much about gambling and I had been kind of making a name for myself on this beat you know I had been writing about gambling for a minute and uh, that story just came out at the right time so Esquire is one of a number of places that reached out to me around that time and said. We'd like to do a piece on gambling. Esquire actually had the idea to do the Jersey, you know, kind of the people crossing the border story. The editor who edited that piece had read, read some interview with um, Chris Christie, where mm. he where he made a reference to friends of his betting at the, um, you know, at the uh, the the rest stop the the stop on the turnpike, and uh, the editor was like, "Is this true? Is this really happened? You know, I think it'd be cool to like write a story about people that do this." And so I said, yeah, it definitely happens. I do it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so they, they actually brought the idea to me, and um, and I ended up hanging around. That was, I think, think it was NFL opening weekend, and I um, just hung around in the Hoboken on the platform harassing people, asking them if they'd talk to me about their bets. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and I, and I met you because I think I put something on Twitter. I think I tweeted something like, hey, I'm looking for people to do this. And, like, a lot of your listeners – started DMing me and tweeting at me and they were like, you got to talk to this guy, you know? So they all were like, you know, talk to him. So I reached out to you and you were like more than helpful. You know, what's crazy about that. I, I didn't see that tweet. And then, cause so I wake up at three in the morning for work. And the reason why we met up at the time that we met up is because I sleep until three. So I get home at around 1130 noon and then I sleep until three. So I could get the second part of my day going. And I just remember waking up and, I had like 15, 20 notifications. My Discord people, <laughs> where if you're a Patreon member, you're in the Discord. Everybody's DMing me. Yo, you got to hit up this guy. got to hit up this guy. And then I saw it and I was like, oh, I'm actually perfect for this thing. Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully he reaches back. And then before you know it, now you're here on the show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, you know, you were the first person I talked to on that thing. And at the time I talked to you, I was super nervous that I wasn't going to find anybody. That pe- Basically, that people weren't going to talk to me. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's a hard thing as a journalist to walk up to somebody and be like, oh, hey, what are you doing? Especially since I'm having to look at what they're doing on their phone. I mean, I, it was so invasive. I was being so, you know, like... Kind of um, creepy in a way. Yeah, totally. And I was uncomfortable about it. I didn't know how it was going to go, and I was nervous about it. So I was glad to get to talk to you because I thought, well, at least there's Nick, and, like, he's, you know, he's great, and he's giving me a lot of good material here. So at least I have this if, no, if everybody else refuses to talk to me. But I think you also helped me get a little more comfortable and feel like, okay, I can, you know, like, this will be all right. Because, uh, because it, wasn't, it wasn't the kind of thing I typically do as a writer, you know what I mean? Like, go do this kind of man-on-the-street thing. just like, And the whole piece was just me. I mean, I spent days and days on that platform just walking up to people and being like, are you betting right now? Which people are like, what? Fuck you. Get the fuck yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, But I, then I was surprised at how many people did want to talk. There were a few who were like, I don't want to talk to you. 
but a lot of people were totally like, oh yeah, you know, they were like, I do do this, and uh, and um, let me tell you all about it, you know. So I got enough to write the piece in the end, and I was glad because I was <laughs> nervous as hell about it. It it seems as if the sports betting community is a very, first of all, it's a big community. Uh, I've always said that it's the giant elephant in the room that people tend to ignore, even though they know it's there. With it being legalized, the stigma is starting to not leave entirely, but it's diminishing a little bit. People are more comfortable talking about it. I mean, even in the documentary that I was a part of, I featured my father. And my parents were very, whoa, whoa, let's not celebrate this. You know, Mm -hmm, growing up, mm -hmm. it was something that my father and I really bonded over. And it was something that we spoke about, too, Mm -hmm. where just he'd come up to me and even if you know you would have those fights with your dad like young kid where you thought you had all the answers to the test and then we wouldn't talk for two three days and he'd come up and be like buddy i think the pat's covered by seven and then before you know it's like we didn't even think about why were we fighting why were we not Mm -hmm. talking for a couple Mm -hmm. days so it was something weirdly enough david that sports betting actually brought my father and i closer together and now through this show, number one, I don't gamble as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. I still hit my futures, and it was something that we had. I think we both were on Chiefs Eagles. I mm-hmm. talked to you at the throw, yep. so I apologize for that. You know, Carson Wentz <laughs> got hurt, man. There's nothing you can do about that. But I love the futures market. I think that's my favorite thing to sort of dictate and and dump my money into. I really need to like a game for me to venture out to Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I know about that stop, that Vince Lombardi way. My friends and I, to this day, when we go for UFC events, we'll pull up over there in the gas station, hang out. Or if we end up going to FanDuel anyway. But it is it is a weird approach because I've done Man on the Streets videos in the past, but we've had a camera. And people are just naturally curious when they see a camera. They're interested in it. But you just approaching people and being like, hey, buddy, what are you doing over Dude. there? What's what's on your phone? Were you gambling? Yeah, I could see how it's it might be awkward or they might be like, oh, is this guy like 5-0 or is he yeah. a, a Fed or something? Some of the people I talked to were like nervous that they because they were there on their lunch break or whatever and they or they were like playing hooky from work. They didn't want me to use their name in the piece because they're like, I don't want my boss to know I was over here. <laughs> yeah, this is why you took 30 minutes when yeah. you're supposed to take 20. Because they're all coming over from the city. Yeah. You know? And it's Hoboken's like the first stop, right? So that's why... Um, that's why everybody was going to hope. That's why that was the spot. So some people, I kept their name out of the piece just because they didn't want their name in there because they were nervous about blowback or something. I was uh, I was so excited to to talk to you and, and to see you. I didn't even really mention exactly what you do. It's, a, it's an <laughs> issue that I have introducing people, but uh, author, gambler, um, podcaster, freelance writer. What would, how would you describe yourself? You know, I just... I define myself as a writer, you know, I feel like I'm a writer first and foremost. I'm doing this podcast now, but it's not something I ever really thought I would, I set out to do, you know what I mean? And I don't, I, I, and I just think that what's interesting is that as a writer, podcasting is just a medium now that you have to, you know, you have to like learn and understand and be a part of because it's a way that people are consuming stories, you know? And so it's just another place for me to tell stories, but I think I'm a writer, you know, a storyteller, um, I don't, I, you know, I don't think of myself as like a whatever a producer or you know <laughs> anything like that. Have you noticed uh, any big differences between the two—the writing, journalistic, traditional—and then now this new form of media being podcasting? Yeah. Well, you know, my podcast is a—it's um, like a narrative podcast, right? By so, the way, I love it. Thank uh, you. Gamblers was amazing. My favorite one was on Phil Galfon, the poker player. We're going to mm-hmm. dive into that in, ju- in just a second. 
But yeah, man, it was. I noticed that that one was very different from other podcasts that I've consumed because mm-hmm. it's it's basically a documentary yeah. in audio form, which is yeah. super interesting. Yeah, it's a lot more like documentary documentary film or something in that respect. I mean, it's like you know, narrative a narrative podcast is like um, different than like an interview podcast like yours because uh, I have to write a script, you know, and so there is a lot of writing involved. So I'm still writing. But it's a different type of writing than I was used to, you know. And when I first started the show, I really started writing my scripts. I, I could tell that I was writing like too much voiceover because I, I'm used to when, it, when I write a written feature, it's mostly in my voice, mm. you know. Um, and then there'll be quotes from people here and there that I use to support the things that I'm saying. But in the podcast script, it had to be the opposite. I can't speak as much. I have to use the quotes. It's mostly quotes from the people I'm doing the story on with my voice coming in to support that everyone. So it's like the inverse of what a feature would be. And it took me a while to learn that and to figure that out. But, um, so it's a totally different type of writing and it's all, you know, it's all I'm writing is my voiceover. So I also have to write like I speak, which is not the way that I would write, you know, to be read. Do you know Mm. what I mean? Like if I'm writing a piece, a written piece, there's a language that is different when you're writing to be read than when I'm writing a script that's going to be spoken because, when I'm reading the script in Gamblers, I, it has to sound natural. If it doesn't sound natural, it's, it just sounds like I'm reading. And so I had to learn how to write in my own real spoken voice, which was harder than you'd think. It's kind of tough to do that because you don't consciously think about that when you're typing, when you're writing it all out, you know? Would you say it was like reading tweets? I don't know. It's, uh, you know, I don't know. I have maybe have a different voice on Twitter than I, than I do uh, on the podcast or when I'm... Uh, writing but it is a little bit like it is the the fact that it's different it is important the fact that we we our voice sounds different on different platforms i think is key here because it's the way our brain kind of processes this you know if i was able to just like if i did an interview show right like your show then it would be more you know like that's going to be closest to who i really am right like this is like when you're on your show you are your, your it's is like you, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Cause you're just talking to your friends and it's, it's not scripted. It's unfiltered. It's like totally like in the moment. Just to pull the curtain back. This is the most preparation that I put when I do shows like this. Right. I just give you an idea of what the topics are going to be. And because I like to treat these like a conversation. Yeah. If us two were to go to a bar, we would never run out of things to say. And that's, that's why I think people, people who like podcasts, who become fans of a podcast, myself, I include myself in this. they, you, you you start to feel like you have a friendship with the people on the show. It feels like you're listening in on a conversation with your friends. You're not participating in a conversation because you're just listening. But if you listen to those conversations long enough, you start to feel like you're a part of that. You know, you feel like you have a relationship with that person, that they're your friend, you understand them. And that's a kind of a key to like having an audience as a podcaster, I think. But a show like mine doesn't, I don't get have that, right? Like as the sort of narrator of gamblers, you know, I'm not... The listeners of that show have no... In fact, they probably hate my voice. You know what I mean? Like, you could love you could love that show and hate me because the show's not about me. You know what I mean? I've, I have very little to do with it. It's about these people that I'm profiling and my voice is just kind of helping, you know, move the story along. And so I don't have to feel like... Um, I feel some pressure to, like, sound natural or whatever. But, like, at the end of the day, I'm not a character mm-hmm. in the show, you know? Um, I'm You're kind of just driving the car. Yeah, it's like I'm like... Or are you more of a passenger? I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. I don't know. I think that I'm probably driving the car because I'm moving the beats of the story along. Like each beat is going to be sort of introduced and, in, you know, intro and outro by like some VO from me, you know? Mm. So I'm probably driving the car. 
But, you know, what I hope to capture in each episode is that people is that the person I'm doing the episode on that you get to see them as a real person. You know, that you can sort of feel that 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 sort of um, uh, you can feel that uh, that genuineness from them rather than me. Although I try to be as genuine as I can, right? It's just, it's weird. It's a weird form that I'm still learning. I mean, we only did seven episodes, so I'm still figuring it out, you know? <laughs> how did how did Gamblers come about? Because the, the Ringer is, you know, it's it's a big time network. It's a big time organization. And I was, I was super pumped for you when I saw it because I'm a big fan of the Ringer. Uh, Bill Simmons is one of my uh, inspirations, a guy who I try to sort of mold my stuff around him rogan are two of the guys that i look up to the most in this form of media and that was dope to be with the ringer and i know you've done stuff with them in the past so how did how did gamblers come about yeah i've been freelancing for them for a long long time i mean i i came over with those guys from grantland you know so i used to write for grantland and then i didn't know that yeah and so when they started at the ring when they started the ringer you know um sean fantasy you know he invited me to start you know, pitching them and writing for them from the very beginning of the ringer. And it's been a place that I've written a lot of long pieces for over the years. And, uh, but again, it's that Spanky story. Once that story, once I wrote that story about Spanky, um, this is around the moment that I think number one, the ringer was moving to podcasts. It was a big part of what they were doing. And number two, I didn't know this at the time, but they obviously were talking to Spotify. Like they knew that they were going to make this deal with Spotify. That was all being sort of in the works at Mm -hmm. that time. But I didn't know any of that. And um, I wrote the story about sports gambling, and, um, and it did well. And then, um, and then Sean came to me and said, do you think that there's like a podcast here? You know, obviously because like that's where their money was being made. That's the right. side of their bread was being buttered on, you know. So they were, he was like, do you think there's a podcast here? I was like, definitely. You know, I was like, what took you so long to ask? You know, like, <laughs> like I could totally do this. I mean, you know, so he said, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you um, make a list of like 10 – 10 ideas for episodes of people that you would profile or whatever, how you would do this. And so I, I mean, I, it's like I was ready for that. You know what I mean? Like I, I already kind of had 10 ideas. It wasn't even hard to put that list together because I had already kind of had this idea in my head about how I could tell more of these kinds of stories, whether I was going to do it on a podcast or not. You know, I definitely, when you're freelancer, you eat what you kill. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So it's like, I'm always having to think about what's the next idea and you're going to, you know, you, you pitch, five ideas to get one to land or whatever. So like, I always kind of have to have a backlog of ideas of stories I may want to work on anyway. So I kind of had that, you know, but I had to be honest, like as much as I wanted to be asked to do a podcast, I hadn't, didn't have the first clue about how to do one, you know? Um, but I gave them some ideas. They said, this is great. Let's do it. Let's make a show. And, um, and so we started working on the show and then like maybe not even halfway into production, uh, the pandemic hit and then I thought the show was dead. I mean, we had only we had only done um, three episodes, and we originally were going to do eight, I think, for that first season. And I had all these crazy ideas, and I mean, there's a lot of travel involved. There's a lot of stuff that I was very excited about, and then we just had to like, I thought the show we were just going to shut the show down because what, what we were going to do, we were all locked down, where there was going to be no travel. Mm-hmm. And my show is all me. You know, I had to do a lot of travel because I was there with the gambler that that I'm profiling. I'm with them, spending time with them day after day, following them around with a microphone, hanging out with them, watching them work. So I couldn't imagine how to do it any other way. And so it just sort of sat there for months uh, where we weren't doing anything. And because we, we also didn't know back then how long this pandemic was going to last. 
Mean, guess what? We still don't know. Yeah, we still don't know. Yeah. But at the time, we so didn't know yeah, yeah. that we actually thought, well, maybe by the end of the summer, we could pick this back up. You know what I mean? Like, this is in 2020. This is like early 2020, and, and we were saying, well, let's just put it all on pause, and then maybe at the end of the summer, we'll be able to like get back into this thing. So once we got into the summer, I realized that's when people started to understand, like, oh, this thing could go on until the 12th and ever. Mm. So we said, look, we're either going to do this or not. So I had to rewrite episodes and rethink them and figure out how can I do this remotely? How can I finish this season in my basement? And so some very cool ideas that I had, we had to like, re, you know, totally reshape them. And like the Galfon episode is totally a product of that. Phil was not a part of the original first season. Um, I, the Phil, the Galfon challenge started, you know, became a thing during the pandemic really. And I was following it already. And it, as I was following it, I thought, this could be an episode of my show, right? Like, this could be an episode of Gamblers. This is a really cool story, what's happening right now. And what's great about it is it's all happening online, so I don't have to be there. You know, I could do this episode. On Twitch. Yeah, I could do it. I, we've got the audio from Twitch. I can interview all these people. And it just felt like, and it, it felt like the perfect story to tell during the pandemic. So I reached out to him, and I was like, do you want to do this? I'm trying to do this show. This seems like the perfect. So he said yes, and... That kind of saved us show in a little bit in a, in a, a little bit because I uh, suddenly thought, okay, I can do this. I can I can come up with other story ideas that maybe will fit this moment, you know. And the Galfon one was one of those. Dude, it's funny how the pandemic turned into what was my favorite episode of the bunch. I'm gonna I'm a poker kid, mm-hmm. right? I was one of those dudes who thought about dropping out of college at one point because mm-hmm. so I play, I used to play on Poker Stars and Full Tilt. And I always liked playing poker. And then it was like around that online boom, right? All these websites coming out left and right. And I put $250, a $250 gift card into Poker Stars. And I was playing $20 sit and goes. What year was this? 2011, mm-hmm. right before the whole Black Monday thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, within. Those four months, I got the $250. I turned it into over $11,000. I was playing $20 sit and goes. Mm-hmm. So for those that don't know, it's a it's a 10-man uh, game. Very quick. They're done in about 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, Texas Hold'em, top three win money. Uh, first place used to be like 150, 140 bucks or whatever it was. And then I was just playing those. And then, you know... One or two weeks, I've gotten my bankroll up to $500. I'm like, oh, all right, there's something here. Before you know it, I play one of those like satellite tournaments. I want to seed into a bigger contest. It's very similar to DraftKings and FanDuel. Mm-hmm. That's why you see a lot of these online poker dudes have transitioned into the daily fantasy stuff. So, so David, I'm over there. Before you know it, I have $2,000 in my account. It's like middle of January. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Am I like, am I like the next Phil Hellmuth? Am I Phil Ivy? Like, before you know it, it's up to 5K. I show my dad. I'm like, yo, I think I'm going to drop out of college and just do this. He's like, no, let's not get crazy. You know, like, see how far you could take it. Around my birthday, March 11th, I have over $10,000 on the account. Not even thinking like, oh, let's withdraw it. Let's do it. Let's, I'm just like, all right, I'm playing with house money now at this point. And then I just go to open my account one day, like every other online poker dude. And bam, seized. Yeah. Black Monday. Did you ever get it back? Nope. They got it all? They didn't give you any of it back? Nothing. Nothing. 
It should have been on full tilt. They all got repaid eventually. It took them years, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe if I was older at the time, I probably would have like definitely so stuck th to it. Did that like just crush your poker? You're done with poker at that point? The whole online thing? Dude, even my grades are starting to fall because I was in class just like playing. You know, I'd have them be in lecture hall and just like BSing, you know, and that's all I thought about was poker, 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 mm -hmm. poker. Um, I was even playing a lot throughout like, you know, neighborhood games, casinos. Yeah, I would right. drive. One time I drove out to um, Sands, I think in Philly or in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And I went to a $250 tournament, sat down, second hand I was out, rebought. Three hands after that, out again. Mm -hmm. So I spent about five hundred dollars in eight-hour commute <laughs> for about four and a half minutes at a poker table. Yeah, the trials and tribulations of playing poker. Yeah, totally. And you know, it's wild because like uh, so many people experienced that, right? Where they ran up a big number and then said, "This is just what I'm going to do." Yeah. Right? And some people were actually able to do it. Phil, in his story, you know, you know, he actually it, he kept running it up and it never stopped, and he did you know, make millions and, you know, was very successful. A lot of people, though, didn't, and they ran up a big number and then they ran it right back down, right? Because there's variance and people don't account for that and they misjudge what's the long run, you know? And, uh, but I think that with with um, daily fantasy or poker or even with, you know, a lot of what, what we see now with sports betting um, in new markets where there's a lot of bonuses is that, People who are kind of early to early to market with this stuff, the like early adopters of this stuff, suck up a lot of easy money, mm -hmm. right? Like it was like that with online poker too. In the early days of online poker, it was just like free money. There was so much. There were so many people that didn't know how to play. There was so much rake back and bonuses and stuff you could get. That just knowing a little, just knowing a little bit could make you, you know, truckloads of money. And then that's, but it gets tougher, right? And you have to, you can't just like rest on your laurels. You you, you have to keep getting better and better. And keep up with it. And um, that's what the Phil story is kind of about, is about how like technology was getting, was changing the game in ways that he, was difficult for him to keep up with because of poker solvers and things like that. And I thought that was one of the interesting kind of um, dynamics in his story was was how he was once kind of a young upstart that that took the game away from an older generation and then and then didn't take long for him to find himself in the older generation because of how quickly technology moves things now, right? Like poker was the same game from 1970 till 2003 mm -hmm. it was the same game and nobody had reinvented it the the, the way to play the, the like optimal way to play the sort of accepted accepted common wisdom about poker was unchanged for like 30 years and then when these guys come in in 2003 and start changing the game and the chris moneymaker era yeah during that and but also the online era really I right mean, yeah that's you true. know and it, the the uh the guys who were playing on the internet were playing so many more hands that's than the older was. generation was ever yeah. able to playing over the table. So, like, the idea that you could play a million hands of poker was un was wild, right? Yeah. It would take a lifetime to play that many hands. But these kids were doing 10 tables at a time. So they were getting good really, really fast. So technology was enabling this, like, speeding, this, like, um, the speeding up of, like, the, uh, of, of, of the understanding of the game. And what's weird about Phil is by the time he's in his 30s, now he's in the older generation. You know, he took it away from these guys who were like in their 70s or whatever. And now he's finding that like there's an even younger generation coming in who have changed the game in ways that they're, that they're going to dominate him unless, unless he can adapt. And that's kind of true about a lot of things, right? Like Daily Fantasy was the same thing where like, you know, people who got in on Daily Fantasy early made a lot of easy money. And they were like, oh, there's so many people don't know what they're doing. You know, it's so easy to make money here. 
but quickly the cream separated from the you know the the, the crop, the crop and, yeah. yeah on with that top group of daily fantasy players because there's like an even smaller number of winners who like just were able to like create you know, computer, you know, they were able to create models and programs Excel and stuff. Excel sheets, yeah. 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 And they were able to like have zillions of, uh, of, of, um, uh, accounts and like, uh, and, and they would buy up all the different entries, you know, so they, they, the top like 1% of the top 10% took all the money out and made it really hard for anybody to beat it. And so that kind of is just how technology works now is that like you get in early, you can make some easy money, but it's not going to stay, you know, it's going to, you're, it's, it's not going to stay unless you can like, really hustle hard and be at that sort of real right on the edge right on the cutting edge if you're not there you're eventually going to get beat by the people who are and that's true in a lot of gambling i mean it's like that in like horse racing it's like that with sports gambling i mean you know there's a there's just a very small number of people that are on that edge who are winning so much and where who are they winning it from they're winning from the rest of us you know yeah (laughs) yeah you know i want to go back a little bit to the chris moneymaker because I, i think he's he might be if you were building a Mount Rushmore in poker and in gambling. I feel as if his face needs to be on there mm-hmm. for the doors that he opened up. And is it fair to say that he was just your average Joe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Enters online, wins a ticket to the main event, World Series of Poker main event, which is the biggest. It's the biggest uh, prize pool, first place prize, and he ends up taking it down. Yeah. And then when you dive into his story, I think he was like a teacher or an accountant. He was an accountant. An yeah. accountant. And then everybody's like, oh, I'm an accountant. I'm a sanitation guy. I could enter this, hypothetically speaking, and win it. And then that opened up the door to a lot of new people coming through the floodgates of the poker era. And then you had all the online stuff, too. And you mentioned something in passing before, which I couldn't agree with you more, that if you're a dude who grew up in the era of you know, in the 70s, 80s, and it's now 2010, you're sitting across the table from me, and I'm a 21-year-old kid, and I've been playing on full tilt and poker stars. Dude, I have eight to ten screens up. I had ten screens up at one Mm -hmm. time. There was a point where I was taking my mom's laptop just to have another laptop along with mine, and I'm playing all these hands, and I've seen tens of thousands of hands daily. Where if you're going to a traditional game at a casino, what's the most you think in a five hour span you would see? You're gonna see, you're gonna see probably twenty five to thirty five hands in an hour. Yeah, at that one table. So as if you a, play as five hours, you're gonna see 150 hands if you're lucky. You probably see less because of dealer changes and things. Yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you see 100 hands. Yeah, and then before you know it, the I also think the evolution of the hands that people were playing changed as well. Of course. Like I heard, I started hearing terms of uh, two gappers, right? Where mm-hmm. it's like if you have a five and an eight of hearts and you're on the button, it's like, that's actually a pretty strong hand. If like a six, seven falls before, you know, you're open-ended and it's mm-hmm. like the one gapper, uh, th- things along the line like that. Like if you have an ACE and it's suited, like no matter what play the flop, cause it might, you know, might be on a flush draw. It's like, before you know it, the, the hands are just changing. I remember one time vividly, I played a uh, seven, nine of diamonds. And I was big blind. One of the biggest hands I ever won. You know how they say you always remember the biggest hands you've won and the biggest hands you've lost? Mm-hmm. And I remember the lady at the at the Borgata being angry at me that I played it. She's like, why are you playing? That makes no sense. I'm coming in with queens. Why are you playing that? And I was like, well, I was, you know, I was big blind. I'm already pot committed. And, you know, it's a strong hand. And she was not thrilled that I said it's a strong hand. But then you just start seeing the evolution of just 
different hands that who knows? I wasn't around in the 80s. Who knows if people play a 7-9 suited? Yeah, well, you know, I started playing poker in the um, 90s, right, when I was in college. And, uh, and my introduction to poker was reading books about poker because I was always a games player. I always liked games. I like gambling. And I started reading books about poker. But back then, when I got into poker in the 90s, you could not find a no-limit game. It was like a unicorn. The idea that people played no-limit cash games was ridiculous. Like, I still remember the first time I saw a live No Limit Hold'em game was in Reno, Nevada at the Excalibur, and I was walking through the casino, and I just stopped dead in my tracks, and I looked at this table, and I was like, what is all that mo- They have so much money on the table. What are they playing? Oh, they're playing No Limit Hold'em. And I just stood and watched them because I'd never seen a No Limit game in the wild. Only in tournaments, you know? Because everyone played Limit Hold'em. That's what I came up playing. Everyone, everyone played Limit Hold'em. The top players in the world, the guys who won the World Series of Poker tournament playing No Limit would then take that money and then go play Limit Hold'em. That's what everyone played. And so everyone learned that game. Really, the, um, what, what the internet poker and what the moneymaker boom did was it brought No Limit Hold'em cash games into the casinos in a big way. And it became the game that everybody wanted to play and everybody was learning. And, uh, and that, so that alone attributed to how bad so many people were at it because no one ever played it. So few people had ever played Live No Limit Hold'em. There was just such, I cannot overemphasize how, how few people in America, in America or in the world had ever played Live Cash No Limit Hold'em prior to the early 2000s. Um, it just was such a rare thing. And, um... And then it was suddenly everywhere. And now, you, you know, you can't find limit hold. You yeah, I mean? now it's like, that, so that's game, what I was saying. As you're saying all this, and you're, you're absolutely right, people listening to this that are familiar with poker, they're like, what is this guy talking about? <laughs> all you see now is no limit. Yeah. No, it's like you could not find a game. And now it's like it's all it's everywhere. I remember the first time I played no limit hold. You, pot limit hold was a thing. In New York City, in the clubs in New York City, there were two games. There was uh, there were li- there were limit games. Like I played at the Diamond Club a lot, which was kind of maybe the more proletarian of the poker clubs in New York City. If you've ever seen movie Rounders, yeah. okay, so the two clubs in Rounders are um, the Mayfair and Teddy KGBs. Those are loosely based on two real clubs in New York. The Mayfair uh, would would be the the Mayfair would be the Chesterfield, which is the like fancy club, and then Teddy's place was like the Diamond Club. And I played at the Diamond Club. It's a little bit more of like it's like where like bus drivers would come and play. Like so there was like. Uh, a lot of low limit hold'em there. Like uh, I think the game there was two four or three six. No, it was like three six or four eight or something like that with dollar chips. And then there'd be a uh, ten twenty limit game. And then there was a pot limit game. And the pot limit game was the big game. And like all the big players were playing in that game. And uh, pot limit was about as big of a big bet game as you could find, whether you're in the city in Atlantic City or anywhere. And uh, then it became no limit hold'em after TV. And tournaments on TV because No Limit was a game you played in tournaments. Mm. It was like a high variance game, um, and people who who learned it and mastered it mastered it so that they could play in these tournaments. But they never played it really cash. After the tournaments became the thing was televised, that's the game people wanted to play because it's what they were watching on TV. So that's what they expected in the casinos, and casinos started spreading it. The other thing that's kind of wild is no one had poker rooms in the '90s and early aughts. No casinos had poker rooms. It was considered a waste of real estate to have. Poker rooms. Well, also, the casino doesn't really benefit from poker right. rooms. Not like they would for a bunch of slot machines in that same space. Yeah, I always say that the purest game that you could play at a casino is is poker. My my friends are fascinated because when I go to casinos and my buddies and I, outside of last year, we do an annual Vegas trip every year. And 
poker, I like to describe it as a game that sucks to go if you're going with friends. Because if us two and five other buddies were to go to Atlantic City for a weekend, I don't want to go and play poker. I'm going to disappear from you guys five, six hours. It's not a fun game. You can't right. stay over. I can't show you. Hey, man, look at my hand. Right. You're going to give it away to the rest of the table. So it's a game that sucks if you're going with a group. That's why I would have poker weekends with my buddy Espo. We say, look, once a month, let's take like three, three 400 bucks, and we'll go and play. Um, the Golden Nugget used to have a $150 buy-in uh, daily tournament. And, you know, three, four thousand dollars first place, 10 to 12 tables will fill up. So we do that like once a month because it was every Saturday thing. Yeah. And it's a game that's not fun if you're going with a crowd. Right. It's not blackjack. It's not craps, which is, I think, the best game to play with a group of people. Without a doubt. And the casino there, it's it's peer to peer betting. If us two sit at a table, I'm trying to take David's money. The dealer in the casino have nothing to do with it. They take a little bit or, you yeah, know, you... They rake the pot. Yeah, they rake and you tip the dealer. But for the most part, the casino doesn't suffer a loss, which is why I think early on... And there's still some casinos that don't have poker rooms. No, there are. There, there weren't in the mid-aughts, but there, a lot of those poker rooms have disappeared because, the, you know, it's, it's like we're on the wave of... Like when poker was really shooting up in popularity, I'd say, you know, whatever, 2006... There were poker rooms everywhere. Mm. Everybody had poker because everybody wanted it because that's what people wanted to play. And so the idea was that they, by offering poker, you'd get gamblers in your casino and then they hopefully would play slot machines and other things that the casinos make a lot of money on, which I think is still true. I think that like it's an amenity. Sports betting is the same way. You know, casinos don't make a ton of money off of sports betting. In fact, they risk. They have risk. Even though they're dealing 11 to 10 in the sports book, they, the sports book could have a loss. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? The blackjack tables will not have a loss. You know what I mean? In the aggregate, over the long run, they are going to win the money because it's just they have a much higher edge uh, at, those, at the table games. But at um, sports betting, it's a much harder thing. So they, you know, casinos offer sports betting purely as an amenity to their guests to get gamblers in there so that they'll hopefully play things that have a higher house edge. Poker's the same thing. And... Um, it worked when poker was at its height of popularity. But, you know, it's come down a bit. It's nowhere near as low as it was in the 90s when poker was such an obscure thing. But uh, it's not what it was in 2006 either. You read my mind on a question I wanted to ask you. What is, and after talking with Phil Galfond, which, again, that was, that was my favorite one of the gamblers because, you know, he's a household name to me as someone that was a poker fan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the roller coaster of emotions that you go through and i'm sure you probably got this with all the gamblers right like to to be a gambler as your profession man you're risking you're playing with your livelihood every Mm -hmm. time that you go and you play something and if you go on tilt which is when you kind of lose control and then before you know it it could get sour What, what is the current state of poker right now in 2021 and i know it might be a little difficult because you know we've had the pandemic and i'm not i haven't been to a casino in a very long time so i'm not familiar with what the poker tables are like. So what, mm-hmm. what have you, you know, what, what's the word on the streets? Well, well, you mean like pandemic poker is happening, you know, and they've got these like plastic, they put these like plexiglass things on the tables um, that separate the players from each other. And you can get your hands underneath them to push the chips out and everything. Wow. But like, you're basically in this like bubble. Um, so poker, and they've been playing like that since the casinos reopened, which has been a minute now, you know, they opened at limited capacity and now they're at, I think in Vegas, they might be at, I think they went either from 25 to 35 or they went from 35 to 50. But, you know, they're at, they're at an increased capacity now. And, um, but poker's been happening for a bit. Live poker's been happening in Vegas for a bit now. Um, 
with those kinds of weird plexiglass things on the tables. Um, the sta- state of poker is bad. I mean, it's, you know, it's even before the pandemic, I'd say that, you know, poker, w- I mean, if you just, I don't know what you could judge it on. I mean, the, the number of people that enter tournaments, big tournaments has been going down, you know, it's rebounded a little bit, but, uh, you know, poker's down from its like high water mark, um, from the days when, you know, and and here's why, here's the reason why poker's down because of black Friday, because of the American, because of the unlawful internet gaming, uh, enforcement act, the federal law that was passed with the Patriot act in order to shut down, um, uh, internet gambling in the United States that killed off the poker, uh, economy because people were introduced to poker by playing online and they then took that to the casinos, right? So you're a perfect example. I mean, there were a lot of people like that who built their bankroll on the internet and then they wanted to go to Borgata and then they wanted to go to Vegas, you know, and that's like the big show. Like I built this bankroll. Now I'm going to go play live poker with it. Mm -hmm. That's what everyone wanted to do. That's also how tournament pools work. The reason that there were so many people, were there 8,000 people in the 2006 main event in the World Series, that's like a small city. The reason there were so many people in that tournament was because they were all being fed there by internet tournaments. People were playing online to satellite their way in. That's how Chris Moneymaker got in in 2003. That's impossible now for Americans. Um, there's There are people now who are playing tournament poker who will go to another country or to one of the two states I think it's still two that allow you to play poker online and that's where they'll stay to play the tournament, right? It's like, so you have to be that serious. There's no more accountants. There's no more school teachers. There's no more like people who are like, you know, just having fun playing poker on the side in the evenings and weekends and they may get into the big event. The only people who are able to really grind out in poker tournaments are prof- serious professionals who are, who are, who have backers, who have, you know, a serious bankroll and who are willing to up uproot their lives. I mean, even in the story about Phil Galfon, he talks about how after Black Friday, he had to move his family to British Columbia, right? So that he could continue to his career. Play, yeah. yeah. And so he has to move his whole family there. And it's, it's so yeah, that's hurt the game, you know, because there's not as many opportunities for American recreational players. Now in other countries, it's fine. I mean, a lot of the, you know, internet poker, a lot of the money that is online right now is being, is, is European players, you know, for the most part that are, uh, make that make up that community um, because it's still legal there, and an increasing number of people in New Jersey and Nevada are playing it kind of recreationally. But it won't be like it was until we get rid of the um, the UIGA. We have to we have to change that law and and bring back online poker in the United States. Something very similar happened with Daily Fantasy, where <clears throat> New York came down and they outlawed it for a little bit, and then it got overturned. Because the the companies DraftKings and FanDuel, I remember, I think, I think it was a high number of their users were from New York. Yeah. So they were really going to bat for it. Do you remember? I, th- I believe it was 2000, either 15 or 16. It was week one, and dude, every other commercial was yep. FanDuel or DraftKings. Yeah. And then that's when they were so in the public eye. Mm-hmm. That the feds were like, oh, hold on, what, what is this a million dollar prize pool every week? Like, oh, let's get a get a hand of it. And then they sort of did it to themselves, where they wanted all the attention. And then before you know it, you have a bird's eye view on everything that you're doing. Do you think that Black Friday thing was the right call in hindsight because of all the money that was available? If you were to reg- regulate it, that's the big thing that I've always been saying about sports betting. You know, in the documentary, there was a uh, senator of New York that said that close to nine hundred million dollars 
was wagered in New Jersey last year during the football season mm-hmm. only by New York registered players that have to commute in there. Mm-hmm. So your state is losing a lot of money by you not welcoming this sports betting thing. You know, mm-hmm. right now, currently, only three states in the whole U.S. have not attempted or submitted a bill to be passed on sports betting. My hot take, David, for years was we're going 50 for 50. It's too economically beneficial for all parties involved. Just think of what's happened in Jersey, the jobs that are created. You got people answering phones. You got people working at the windows. You create all these other jobs. And now it's regulated where I feel as if I'm I'm a gambler at heart, but I don't even know I love gambling. I'm not betting every weekend, even though it's legal. So do you think going back to that Black Friday decision Hindsight, obviously, 2020. Was that the right call to pull the plug on it? No, I don't think so. I, I, in fact, it's, it, I struggle to understand what the, um, what the rationale can be outside of moralistic arguments, right? I mean, other than saying that gambling is a moral, is a moral and social ill, I don't know how, you know how we could justify a legal prohibition on it. Um, and I don't think that it is a moral or a social ill, right? If, if gambling is a moral or a social ill and we should, you know, prohibit it, then we should do that about a lot of things, including alcohol, right? I don't think that, like, to me, it just makes no sense that we are uh, we are a um, country that tolerates individual liberties, and we will tolerate things like, you know, we, we will regulate sale, the sale of alcohol and consumption of alcohol all over the place, you know what I mean? Like, you, you, you can drink alcohol in a restaurant, you know, where there are children present, but a kid can't go onto the floor of a casino. You know what I mean? Like, there's just there's such a strange disconnect between the way that we think about certain quote-unquote vices and others. And we talked about this last time you and I talked about the sort of stigma that exists around gambling that I think is um, unique to the different sort of stigmatized vices in, in, in American culture. Gambling is one that I think is the most misunderstood because it's the one that I think the fewest, the least amount of people engage in or partake in. So it's the one that I think is the most misunderstood. And, and I think that leads to things like um, legal prohibitions, but we, uh, but the tide will turn. You know, the thing that you said about sports, the number of states that are trying to figure out how to um, regulate sports betting. The same thing is true about gambling, right? I mean, there's you can gamble in a casino in 40 states, right? Which is why I think the fact that the federal government will pro, is prohibiting um, uh, internet gambling i think it kind of calls the bluff on that a little bit right it sort of exposes what the real what the real reason behind uh the federal government banning internet gambling is so there's this guy sheldon adelson he just died i think like last month or whatever he's the guy that owns the venetian casino in las vegas he's like one of the most powerful people probably in america maybe the whole world he's this uber billionaire um owns casinos and uh and other he owns casinos in macau and china so Sheldon Adelson was a big uh, voice behind banning internet gambling. And his reason wasn't because he thought gambling was wrong. Obviously, he owns casinos. It was that he thought that people who were gambling on the internet weren't gambling in his casino. And so it was competition for him. That's what I think is really behind this. It's actually no no laws. I don't believe any laws get passed in Washington, D.C. because of the lawmakers like morality. 
you know, money talks, right? It's all about money. It's all business. And like the people who wanted that law passed were the people who thought they could profit from it. The reason it's the same deal with like the reason that states, individual states are legalizing sports betting and legalizing casino gambling because they want to make money off of it because they have nowhere else to get tax revenue because ta they cut taxes, they cut taxes, they, they, they have no revenue coming in. Everything's getting more expensive. They have a lot of things they got to pay for. Well, how are we going to pay for it, right? So they turn, they, they look, well, what, what can we do? We can't, you know, we can't tax gas anymore than we have. We can't tax groceries or whatever. Well, well, it's such a perfect solution to say, we'll tax these vices that people want to do so badly, but so few people actually do that, you know? So we'll, we'll put the tax burden on gamblers or people who buy lottery tickets or whatever, and we'll use that money to do good things. And I think that's why we're seeing this like rapid expansion of uh, gambling across the country is because states who are hard up for money are thinking, well, what's, what's a new thing that we can bring in? So that, then you're not raising taxes on something that already exists. You're regulating a new market and then taxing that. You're creating new tax revenue without raising taxes. It's like the purpose, but you can only do that for so long. Right. And I think they'll grow disenchanted with the amount of money they can get from sports books or from casinos in time, and then they'll be right back to where they started. The interesting thing about gambling, if you think about the addictions that are out there, alcoholism, drugs, gambling, it's the only one that you could win in, if you really think about it. That's right. It's the only one where if I give you $100 to go to the sports book and put a three-team parlay, I could get a return that's going to stimulate me in a different way. Absolutely. Where, you know, alcoholism, and I'm talking about like hardcore addiction, right? Like alcoholism, that gets really funky. Drugs gets really funky. Sure, you could lose money in, in gambling, but it's the one that you could see a return that I think the stimulation to it outweighs all the others. Yeah, I did one of the episodes of Gamblers is about this woman named Emily Gullickson, and she's a uh, she's a horse player. You know, she she bets on horse races and stuff. And how do people bet on horses? I have trouble <laughs> betting on on humans. You want me to bet on a horse? I bet the Kentucky Derby every year. The number ten horse ten is my favorite number. I think. In the last like twelve years, I'm like one for for twelve. Mm -hmm. But the one time that it won, it was like a four to one payout, and it was like fifty bucks. So I'm I'm, I'm in the red is basically what I'm saying with the yeah. derby. But I can't I can't fathom the idea of horse racing to me. It's it's the most fascinating form of betting in my opinion. Just I just don't get it, don't understand it. But if you go to any racetrack. It's just, and I mean, the Kentucky Derbies get like 140,000 people in all those funky hats and outfits. What, before you get into the, 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 the background of, of this lady, what's the fascination with the horses? Well, I mean, horse racing is, um, betting on horse racing in some ways is no, in some ways is no different than betting on sports. If you think about handicapping, right? Like handicapping who's going to win a horse race or handicapping who's going to win a football game. It's the same thing. It's all about data, right? You look at, you look at past performance you look at conditions, you know, current conditions, you look at, you know, the competition and you try to figure, you know, like it's the same skill set in that mm. you're, you're just handicapping based on the information that you have. And if you look at the right data, you might handicap it correctly. That's, that's this handicapping anything. Now the betting is incredibly, is, is actually fundamentally different, right? I mean, when you bet on sports, you are betting into a number, the, the, a bookmaker sets the number and you bet into that number. Um, and you place the bet with the bookmaker, and the bookmaker, you know, fades your bet. Uh, hopefully, you know, some in theory, like in a perfectly theoretical situation, a bookmaker is going to get 
uh, equal balanced action and they're going to collect the VIG or whatever. That never happens, right? right? That, but, that's the origins of what a point spread was. It was right. made to create equal to create balance ba- on both right. sides because, you know, if the Jaguars are playing the Chiefs, everyone and their mother is going to bet the Chiefs, but are you going to bet them to win by 20 and a half? That's right. where the equal balance comes but in. But the number, whether it's the spread or even if it's just the straight up, like uh, whether you're getting, you know, minus 110 or minus 120, the bookmaker sets those numbers. And changes the and is and has the privilege to change the number or leave it the way it is based on the action that they're getting. In horse racing, we have what's called parimutuel betting. So all of the odds are fluctuate based on how what's bet, right? Huh. So if a horse is paying ten to one, that means that the amount of money in the overall pool of money bet on each horse to win, there is ten times more money bet on other horses than that horse. So if that horse wins, you're going to get. You're going to collect the loser's money, right? So that money gets divvied up to the people that bet on the horse that was 10 to 1 at a rate of 10 to 1. Now, if people keep betting, that number is going to change. It's not until the horses leave the gate that you know exactly what the odds are going to be that you'll get paid off it at because it's just constantly changing. That's called parimutuel um, uh, betting. It started in France, and it's um, in some ways it's a very kind of like democratic way to think about it because the odds are true. They're not true to the horse's actual ability they are true to what's in the pool right like of all the money that's in the pool if there's if everybody's betting on the same horse those odds are going to be very very slim you know i mean that you're gonna um you're not gonna make much money you might make like a dime or whatever because that's where all the money was there's too many winners to pay out and too few losers to collect from um and the opposite is obviously true for long shots and so this is uh, different than fixed odds betting what we see in sports what's interesting is a lot of horse players hate this and they clamor for Um, fixed odds betting in horse racing. They want sports books to start booking horse races with fixed odds, which is how it used to be a long time ago in the United States was that it was all fixed odds betting. And just like with sports, bookmakers would set, would, would set a price and people bet into it. They want that because it's hard to beat. It's hard to beat the number because the number is kind of, the number is hammered into shape by so many people betting. And what you look for in horse racing is a horse whose odds on the board you think are out of whack with what you think the horse's true odds are, right? So a horse may be the best horse in the race. That's very similar when people have their power rankings and yeah. their true value of, well, this team on a neutral should be a five-point favorite, but now they're a seven-point favorite, so you find value That's right. on the other That's side. That's exactly the same thing. But in horse racing, once upon a time, I think it was easier to do this because the bookmaker who sets the numbers in sports has a lot of data, sometimes has more data than the gamblers, and the numbers are going to be fairly accurate. Not only do they have data about the matchup, they have data about what everybody's betting on too. And in horse racing, it's just the public. There's no there's no wise guy. There's no like, you know, there's no bookmaker that gets to come in here and set these odds. There's a morning line or whatever, but um, but the public so the public can be wrong. And you can you could find value because you could find a horse that's getting the shit bet out of him for some stupid reason, like maybe they've got a jockey that's hot or something, or maybe the horse is like, you know, and, and you could exploit that. The problem is that today gamblers are much more sophisticated than they used to be and it's a lot easier to put money into these pools online and stuff like that so the numbers are more accurate than they used to be but i think a lot of people made their living betting on horses in the all the way into like the 80s you know because there was a lot of value to be found because you're you're fading the public you weren't fading a bunch of wise guys <laughs> man horse racing is such a it's such a weird weird thing to bet on in that whole world it's the it's the OG though it is yeah this it is. is where it all began in the united states and it, the gambling you know, horse racing was the original sports betting. I mean, horse racing, I think I've made this point on your show before, but, you know, up until like the 1960s, 
and really well into the 60s, horse racing was one of the most popular sports in America. Horse racing, boxing, and baseball were the three most popular sports in America into, all the way into the 60s. Why? Because the people gambled on it, right? I remember ESPN did a top 50 athletes of all time, and they had that horse that won the Triple Crown, the original one. Secretariat. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of wild. Well, you know, it's true that Secretariat <laughs> was an incredible horse. And these horses are athletes. No, but I mean, like, yeah, to, to put it as an athlete, like, you're going to compare that to Michael Jordan? Well, it, I, yeah, I would. I mean, it is an athlete. It's racing other horses, and it's it was, you know, Secretary was unbeatable, you know? I think that... Um, I understand what you're saying because the horse doesn't have like um, the horse can't speak or whatever doesn't have agency. But I do believe the horses they enjoy running and they do like competing. They're not just out there running because like they're chasing you know like in dog racing where they chase the little rabbit. Yeah. You know the horses they 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 understand that they're racing, and they know that they know that they have to win, and they get rewarded when they win, and they know that you know what I mean. Like it's it's. It's something they naturally do. If you put horses out into a pasture together, they race each other. You know what I mean? It's just something that thoroughbred race horses do. They run fast. And it's fun for them to run fast. So I do think of them as athletes. But it's a whole other show, I think, to talk about you know, my, my feelings about horse racing. But I, get, I take your point. Uh, you know, a horse doesn't have a lot of decisions that it makes. But it does make some. What would you say are some of the misconceptions that you've uncovered from the series that you've done about gamblers like what what did you go into these interviews or interactions with these people and you were just look a lot of people just make judgments right mm -hmm. good or bad but sometimes you go in there with a level of expectation and then they they kind of surpass them or they're like oh you know what i, I didn't i never knew it was like that what kind of misconceptions did you discover from some of these series well, that you're doing i wanted the whole show to be about um kind of uh turning misconceptions on their head about gamblers, right? I wanted the whole show to be like that. I, I intentionally did not have a poker episode in the first season originally because I felt like poker is a thing. It's a known quantity. Everybody understands it. You know, people who follow this stuff, they watch poker on TV. They know all these poker players. They understand that world. So I wanted from the beginning to show that, that people gamble on a lot of different things, not just casino gambling games, and that um, people can make a living at it by being good at it. Right, that that people can people who are skillful at playing these games can do it professionally, and that gambling isn't all just like luck, and it isn't just like you know it isn't just like people. That's who, the biggest misconception I think. People think that it's all luck. Right. Is there luck? Yeah, absolutely. But and and also you know what, I'm gonna sound a little hypocritical because I think there are certain games where luck is the be all end all. Mm -hmm. Roulette. I have no physical control on the outcome outside of just praying that it lands on double right. zero. Poker, blackjack, there are ways that you could gain leverage on the field. Well, this is why there's no professional roulette players. Right. Right. So I think And anyone that tells you, Oh, I got a strategy in roulette, you're like, No, you're an idiot. Right. Because there is no strategy. Well, there are there have been teams over the years that have been able to beat roulette because um, you know, there's this great book called The Eudemonic Pie that's about this team of physicists. Um, who were able to figure out how to predict where a ball was going to land using stop yeah and it worked and they were able to beat a bunch of um, casinos before and casinos would come out and switch the wheels because you could basically they could basically find wheels that had um, bias and they could predict based on what what quadrant of the wheel that the ball was in when it first falls off into the wheel where it was going to end up which quadrant would it, and they would just put their bets on the numbers that were in the right quadrant, and they they just they they cleaned up. And this was, I think, in the I want to say this was in the 1980s. Um, and then there was a second team that came along behind them. They used these like 
they had this uh, device that they would use to help them. And it was illegal what they were doing. It wasn't, when they started it, I don't think it was, but Nevada eventually passed a law that made it illegal to use um, any kind of computer assistance on any of their games. Because people were devising, like, very early on in the 70s, like, blackjack computers, you know, computers that could help them keep track of counting cards and stuff, and they'd hide the game, particularly well, even- gambling games. There have been people who've tried to figure out how to, how to beat it. And for the most part, are fairly successful. You don't always hear these stories because people don't, they don't tell them because they want to keep making money at them, right? Even slot machines. I mean, there's a lot, believe it or not, there's a lot of professional slot machine players in America. You know the, the roulette that is the standing one? Mm-hmm. The one where it's sort of uh, like uh, the price is right? Yeah, they that, call it the big wheel. That one. Um, there's a way you can get an edge on that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I, I don't know if I should say this, but... <laughs> I told the dealer one time, I was like, hey, buddy, let me get a 45 and I'll tip you well. So I gave him a 50 before he spun it. Uh-huh. And he told me, give me five spins. So like he knew how to do it? Dude, within Just five spins. Like, like the third spin it hit. I believe that. I bet he probably knew. The dealer probably knew how because to do it. Because in that, there's a physical it. action. Yeah. So he knows if I put, you know. Right, right. But he's got to be on your side because he doesn't work for you. He works for that. Right. House, yeah. But I, you know, I threw him a nice 20 piece first. And then I was like, I'll hook you up if it yeah. goes again. And dude, my mind was blown. And that's when, this might have been maybe four or five years ago. I was in Vegas. Uh, not going to mention the casino in the event that I go back there again and I find them. <laughs> so you can bless me. But, you know, I want a good amount of money. And I remember just saying to myself, if there's funky shit like this going on. Oh, yeah, well, sure. And look, I mean, like, Blackjack's a perfect example, right? I mean, Blackjack has been exploited by what we call advantage players, you know, counters and and, and uh, whole carters for a long time and continues to be to this day. And if you listen to my show, the first the pilot episode is about this woman, Gina Fiore, who is a whole carter um, who's made a fortune you know, um, by being able to see dealers hold cards and stuff. But, uh, but what I wanted to do with the show was show that like, that, that people can do this professionally, that there's something that it takes skill to be able to play games to that, at that level and to kind of return some respect to it. You know what I mean? I mean, yes, there's luck, there's luck in football, you know, there's luck in basketball, right? I mean, there's luck in all sports. You, in fact, every good game will have some element of luck. Mm-hmm. If you take all the luck out of it, then you have you're left with chess. You know, you have a game that's just a complete game of perfect information, and the same person will win all the time, right? So luck actually creates variance. It creates, you know, in some ways, can create some parity if you introduce elements into a game where that that that, that allow for lucky things to happen. I think that's the mark of a good, of a good game. Now, if a game is entirely luck, it's a bad game, right? Like the board game, sorry is one of my least favorite games to play with my children. There's nothing you can do. You just roll it. You know, you just pull the cards, roll the die. You're not making any decisions, but having a combination of like luck and decision-making makes it for a good game. And there are a lot of smart people who have figured out who are good at games who can make a living gambling. But more importantly, what makes somebody a professional gambler is that they're people who wager their own money put their own money at risk in order to earn a living. And in that way, they're no different than, say, somebody that makes their living trading stocks, right, or makes their money in the markets. Those people, too, are risking their own money to make money. Yet those people carry a lot of respect in our society for some reason, and gamblers don't really have that same level of respect. Most of us who, are, who earn our money through wages, you know, we risk nothing. You know, we go and put in our work, and we get paid for it, as we should, but, like, we don't risk our money. Mm-hmm. And we're very risk averse as a society. People don't like the idea of risk, right? And so that's why people don't like gambling because they're like, I work hard for my money. Why would I want to risk it? You know, why would I want to put it at risk? So the thing you said before about gambling is the vice where you could actually um, 
Winning. where you could win. It's also the one where you could actually lose money. Now, in other vices, you can lose very important things, you know, like you can lose your health, you can lose your life, you know, there's, like you could die from doing drugs, you can die from drinking, well, you can die from gambling. Well, in gambling, you can lose your house, right? You, sure. get, you fall back on payments because you gambled your money sure. away. And I've heard some horror stories. I mean, dude, even me, I got I got really addicted to gambling when I was like 22 to 25. Right. And then when I started doing the podcast, David, that's when I started to steer away from it because I enjoyed talking about it more than actually doing it. And look, I still bet. But I'm talking about like, you know, I sold my Xbox one time just so I could pay my bookie. I've had to sell like jewelry. That's why I, I, I said on a recent podcast, I kind of wear like these ropes that my grandma got me from Greece because mm-hmm. I've become accustomed to resenting jewelry just because. It sucked that I had to do that, right? I'm not yeah. proud of it, but it was something that, you know, I just got, I remember delivering pizza and I was like, all right, man, I'm making 600 bucks a week. I could gamble 500 of it, right? Mm-hmm. I did the mm-hmm. whole online account stuff. And man, I'm talking about like just Tuesdays, I was tapped out. Like I just like owed my bookie money and shit like that. So it, it was something where you, you can lose a lot of uh, tangible things that, you know, I can't put a price on that that old watch that I had to pawn off that my grandma gave to me. Right. Right. Like there's no actual like sentimental value that outweighs like what it actually costs. But it was like with the gambling, there's, there's stories of people that have lost houses and, you know, divorced. Right. right. Like, yeah. You know, if you're, if you're losing $2,000 a month, your wife is like, Hey man, you know, let's not do that. And then before you know it, there's a fight going on. It's cause you're addicted to this thing. Well, it's not, it, it could be that you're addicted. It could be that you, made a bet that you thought you would win and then you lost it. People people make bets in life all the time. I mean, people start businesses, right? They um, they make investments. They put their money into real estate. I mean, I got like I got a relative who made a bunch of money uh, in some in like a franchise restaurant that he was involved in. And then he he wanted to, he immediately put that money invested into this, some sort of like weird oil exploration thing he was going to do that went belly up. He lost it all. He lost everything and he was dead broke, right? He doesn't, nobody treats him like he's some sort of degenerate addict. They don't say, well, you're like an oil addict. You got addicted to oil. No, he made an investment that went bad. That happens all the time in, in, under capitalism. And like, we celebrate it sometimes. Mm. We celebrate the winners anyway. You know what I mean? And we, we kind of ignore the fact that there might be losers. But people make, <clears throat> excuse me, people make bets in life and in this, in, in, in our culture. They call them investments. Or they call them what, you know, they may, maybe give it another name, but it's a bet. You look, you think there's some value. You think that if I use this money, if I put this money into this, I'll make more money back than what I put into it. And you think of it as a good investment. But that's just gambling. That's a bet. That's what we're doing when we make a bet on a hand of cards or at a football game. <clears throat> so it's the same thing, in my opinion. And yes, people do get addicted to gambling. In fact, there are certain forms of gambling that are designed to make people addicted to them, right? Like slot machines are by design they're machines that are designed to get people addicted and to suck their mind i think that that's reprehensible right um but that's not to say that the concept of gambling you know see i i think that we should divorce this this stigma from around this concept of gambling and really be more specific about what we're talking about because i think there are forms of gambling that i think um well i think there's a difference between gambling and betting because i think betting is understanding markets finding value like why is I see it what you're that, saying there's no there's less risk? Yeah, like gambling implies risk. Think about it. Lottery tickets are fine. Scratch offs are fine. Meaning like it's like you said, we celebrate the guy that won half a million dollars, right? We or, do or half a billion. Some dollars. people do, yeah. Right, right. The others are hating that they won that. But then if you look at it, there's 
there, you have a better chance of winning on taking the Giants to cover three points than you do on hitting the take five, just statistically. Sure. And if you do the research and you understand, like you were talking about, like conditions and, you know, um, did the team come in late? Did someone get COVID in this new era of COVID? Right. You could sort of gain an edge. But what somebody would probably, what I would say is that if somebody presented me that question about like, well, you have a better chance at figuring out who's going to win the Giants game than winning the lottery, I'd say, yeah, but if I bet, if I buy this lottery ticket for a dollar, I might win, you know, a million. But if I bet a dollar on the Giants, I'm going to win 90 cents. Mm. So it's a risk versus reward thing, too. And when you think about it like that, the lottery is a much better bet if you only want to wager a dollar, <laughs> mm. right? If I'm going to bet $100, well, $100 worth of lottery tickets, I might as well flush it down the toilet because I'm probably not going to win. And I, that $100 means a lot to me. $100 in the Giants game where I could win 100 is a better bet for me. But you know what I'm saying? So really, all of gambling is about figuring out what is the amount of money what is the percentage of my bake roll that I'm willing to put at risk and what's the potential reward I'm going to get? What is my expected value for this bet? But, you know, the story I was going to tell before about Emily, I think is, an, is relevant here. She, in her episode, talks about the stigma that people in her family and in her kind of world placed on gambling. And Emily's an interesting case because Emily is like, she's punk. You know, she comes out of the punk and straight edge scene. She's never done drugs in her life. She never drank alcohol. You know what I mean? She was like vegan. You know, she was like, and she was like, she's covered in tattoos and she's like this hardcore chick. And she was, you know, she was a professional horse player, you know what I mean? Horse game and was into gambling. And uh, I felt like in the episode, the way that she described gambling, it's something I've been saying to people all the time ever since, like it stuck with me. But she said, you know, a lot of people, what they do with, for fun on the weekends is they maybe go snowboarding, right? So say that's your hobby. You like to go snowboarding. Well, there's a cost associated with that, right? You got to buy snowboards. You got to buy clothes, you know what I mean? Like gear or whatever. You got to buy all the shit. And then you got to buy lift tickets. And you got to drive to the mountain. You spend money. Sometimes you stay over. And she's like, a weekend of snowboarding could cost you a thousand bucks all in or even 500 bucks or whatever. And, and, you, and, and it has no value to society whatsoever and it has no value to your life it doesn't help you make any more money it's not a responsible economic decision to be into snowboarding right it doesn't it, unless you're a professional snowboarder right. right it's only going to create a memory not so much That's a financial it. it's just your fu it's fun it's entertainment for you right. and but people do this kind of thing all the time they spend tons of money on things that bring joy to them that's their entertainment. And no and and nobody gives them a hard time nobody says like think of what all you could have done with that 1000 bucks you went on a snowboarding weekend. Think about what else you could have done with a thousand dollars. You just basically wasted a thousand. But if your hobby, if what makes you happy and you're in, what makes you, you know, brings you joy, is a weekend at the track, losing a thousand dollars betting on horses, well, people are very judgmental about that, and they think that there's something wrong with you or that you're like a sicko. And there, they'd say a thousand dollars. You you lost a thousand dollars at the track. Think of what all you could have done with that money. And it's like, what what else am I going to do? I had fun. What am I going to do with it? That's what I do. You go snowboarding, I go to the track. And that was kind of how she explained it. And I thought that really resonated with me is that the real disconnect here is that people don't do it so they, or it's not fun for them, so they don't understand it. And then they stand in judgment of everybody who does. And the fact that, yes, there are people who are addicts who are addicted to this. And so folks look at those cases and they worry that maybe you're like that, right? Like mm -hmm. if you do this, maybe you're like the absolute worst example of this too. And that gives people you know, that gives people cause for concern or maybe some judgment. But I think that that's misplaced. And I don't think we do that about anything else in society, right? I would, I mean, people would think I was an asshole if I, if, if they told me, like, if I said, what'd you do last night? Oh, I went to the bar and had some drinks. And I said, are you, 
do you have a prob- a drinking problem? You know, should I have an intervention with you? Are you an ad- are you a, an alcoholic? People would think I'm being an asshole if I did right. that, right? But like that's the exact same thing you're doing to people when they tell you like, yeah, you know, I blew I blew too much money gambling this weekend, and and now I got to figure out how to get the money. People think like, oh, there's something wrong with you. You're like you're sick. You're like a degenerate, and maybe I need to help you or have an intervention. It's like no, I mean, look, I used to have a, I used to have this fancy bracelet i don't have it anymore when i had it it was like a nice shiny thing in my wrist but now i don't have it because i I decided i was going to spend that money on trying to take a chance on the giants or whatever (laughs) to me it's look i grew up around this stuff maybe i just give i i I think about it differently than most people do but to me it seems like a very clear like logical disconnect when we talk about gambling as a pathology and we don't talk about other things that we do as pathological i think there's nothing wrong with people saying gambling is my leisure it's my entertainment. It's how I entertain myself. Is I like the rush I get from betting on a horse or whatever. And if people say, well, you shouldn't bet more than you can afford. I'd say it's none of your business. I, I decide what I can afford or not. And if I, if I want to sell my jewelry to make a bet, that's my business. It's not yours. And also, I think you develop discipline over, over time, eventually, where, you know, I like to bet, I say, rage money, not rent money. <laughs> so like like you said, which is an example that I've used in the past, too, where... I've literally said that about going away for a weekend instead of going out, bar hopping, buying drinks and all that bullshit. I'd rather just stay home and just bet college football, bet daily fantasy, bet the NFL for that entire weekend. So if my cap say is 200 bucks that I would spend on a weekend going out, it's like, all right, this weekend I'm not going to go out because I really like this parlay. I really like this Mm -hmm. fight, whatever it might be. So I love that she said that because that's something how I approach it too. I tell people all the time, when you go to a casino, it's important that you have two different bankrolls, especially if you're a gambler. No doubt. Have the money that you're going to go out. When I go to Vegas, David, I have my money that I'm going to go out and party and drink and eat. And then I have my money that I'm going to gamble. And I never never mixed the two. My whole life, I had a separate bank account that I kept my gambling bankroll in so that I couldn't lie to myself about how much I was up or down. I always knew exactly how much. And then when I got married... We, we emptied that account out and paid for the wedding and <laughs> bought a house. But the, because that was when my gambling days were over, at least so I thought, you know, I'm back in the game a little more than I was. But the, the, um, the, the important thing to me was to always know so that I couldn't, you know, I could, because I think what a lot of gamblers do is they bullshit themselves and they, they say, oh, I'm even or whatever, or I'm up. Everyone's you, always even. Everyone yeah. always had their yeah. best year ever. Yeah. But no way. Can you imagine saying to somebody who's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go this weekend. I'm going to like, uh, whatever I'm going to, I'm going to go out, uh, get some, go out with some friends, go get something to eat, go to the, go to the beach. And it's like, well, don't, don't spend, don't spend too much money on that. You know what I mean? It's like, well, I'm going to spend what I'm going to spend on it. You yeah. know, like I've got the money. That's what I'm going to do to have fun. Yeah. I think that it's, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's just about thinking about how in sports gambling is the perfect case for this, right? Because what I think is kind of fun about betting on sports is that, I'm going to watch sports anyway because I'm a sports fan. But if I bet on it, I got some real skin in the game now. And so I used to be, I used to really sweat games because I, I had a favorite team or whatever. And I, w- I would watch all the Nick games and that's all I would watch is the Knicks games. And I was rooting for a team. But now because of, because I maybe bet on the game, I'll watch any game. And suddenly I got some skin in the game. And like, I really like, you know, I have a, I have a, I feel like it's me and that team. I feel like I'm more of a part of it. Right. And it, it sort of heightens the experience for me. And that's true. I mean, I think that's kind of a, um, I think that's a universal truth. I mean, you can see already what's happening in Europe, you know, where the, um, 
in the uh, soccer stadiums. There's like betting kiosk in the seats. Right. Or, or right before you walk in. And everywhere. And they're going to do that in the United States now. I mean, they're going to do that at Yankee Stadium. And, you know, <laughs> that's what that's what we're going to see whenever life gets back to normal in the United States is we're going to see that betting will become a part of when you go to watch a game, betting becomes a part of that game in the United States now that we've sort of lifted the veil from sports betting. We're already seeing it in sports television with ESPN with all all sports coverage the point spreads are now a part of how we report on the game that didn't used to be the case in fact it used to be a real no-no you weren't even supposed to mention it you can you, you've probably heard over the years especially in football games when a game goes over um, or there'll be some score that doesn't matter to the outcome of the game but you'll hear the announcer make some like kind of sly joke about like well there are some people that cared a lot about that touchdown you know it used to be you could only do it in that way now people will just straight up say well there's the over the over just hit because we've lifted the veil from it a little bit and so what we're going to see is that gambling will become a part of the experience because it heightens the experience because it makes it a little more fun to put a little money on your team that you're rooting for anyway and i just think that that's just that's just sort of undeniably true right and so i think that in time we'll shake off some of the shackles of like the uh, the um, taboo that's associated with um, with gambling in America, but we're not there yet. We, and I, I talked about this in your show before, but we used to be. This is all a product of like 1950s America. Like it used to be that gambling was celebrated in the United States. And the example I gave on your show last time was the the, the Broadway show Guys and Dolls is a was a famous celebrated not only Broadway show but movie with like Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando, the only movie they ever did together. And it was so popular. It was like one of the most popular pieces of like American theater and cinema. And it's a movie about, it's a story about gambling. It's a story about guys trying to like figure out where they're going to have the crap game. You know, that would not be written today. You know what I mean? But it was, that was a different time in America where gambling was a bigger part of our culture. And it was something that like, you know, it was a more, more of a kind of a thing that was celebrated. And I just think that today I couldn't imagine something like that being written or a story like that being told. But maybe we'll get back to that place where, we can see gambling as fun again and not see it as this like pathological, dangerous thing that we think of it as today. The most famous example of what you said of, oh, there's the over, is Al Michaels, right? Yeah. Who, I mean, even if you go back back in time to like Jimmy the Greek, right? Like he was the guy who used to be on CBS. Mm-hmm. And they always used to say that that was the most popular segment block of that morning show. And you would hear examples in the past until recent how... If people people knew what the point spread was, right? So, like, say it was a seven point spread for the Bears, and they're playing the Packers, and the Packers are a seven point favorite. They would never say that the Bears are gonna the the Packers are gonna cover. They'll say something like, "Oh, I see the Packers winning by double digits." Mm-hmm. So, you as a listener, subconsciously, you're like, "All right, so David is the expert. He likes the Packers to cover because they're gonna win by double digits." Mm-hmm. So, it's it's funny because. That's big, the big evolution because it's creating more content, right? And as someone who we were talking a lot about being first to the party, like you get an edge on everyone. Like if you were early to the poker boom, right? If you were early to the daily fantasy stuff, I feel like I was early to the sports betting stuff because when I first got into podcasting, I felt like that was going to be the thing that was going to separate me mm-hmm. from everything else. And you're seeing it more and more. These networks are just creating more shows. I mean, even Blue Wire, who I'm associated with and partnered with, they just signed a deal with the Wynn Casino where they're building a podcast studio there too. Mm -hmm. So it's like sports betting is, it's the future, I think. And the future is now. But what do you think is the future of sports betting? Because I have a a thought of what I think the next evolution of sports betting is going to be. Well, I do think that it's, we're already seeing it in that in the integration into the kind of experience of watching sports on television and live 
that betting will be, you know, betting will become more part of that experience. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to discredit what you said before. I totally agree with you about having skin in the game and being more interested because I mean, the NFL was so hypocritical about being anti-betting and then they put a team in Vegas and now mm-hmm. they're just like open arms to betting. Well, not only that, they, not only the open arms, they're demanding money from the sports books. So they opposed this, they opposed sports betting forever. In fact, the most, you know, the strongest sort of lobbying force against, um, clearing the way for legal sports betting were the leagues. And once it passed, now the leagues say they want what's called an integrity fee. And so they actually take money out of the pools. So not only when you bet into these sports betting pools, there's money that goes to the state. You know, the state gets their, they, they rake their tax money, which is and it's different in every state, you know, in some states it's outrageous. Um, but the, 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 the state rakes theirs out and then the leagues get their, their integrity fees and they get that paid out of that. So there's so, you know, that's why, a lot of these big, you know, corporate sports books, they why the numbers are so bad is because they're having to pay out. So there's so much getting raked out of those pools before they can pay out winners. Are you worried about the integrity of sports being diminished? Not with, at all. Not at all. Yeah, because you mean because of like like um, people shaving points and stuff like that. It it or referees calling yeah. too many fouls. <laughs> First of all, the sports books are the ones that discovered that. Yeah, I know, and this is the thing. The the the, the what you would have to assume if you think that like the expansion of sports gambling is going to hurt the integrity of sports is you have to assume that nobody's been betting on sports during all these years that it's been illegal when actually everybody has been, we're not, you know, it's the same thing with marijuana. Like we're not creating new sports gamblers. We're just bringing it out into the open. The public. Yeah. But everybody's already betting. I mean, everybody was already smoking pot. Everybody was already doing this thing. Like, will there maybe be new people? Maybe, but like those new people aren't going to come in. They're not going to be coming in hot. You know what I mean? They're going to come in and, be recreational betters, you know, make $10 parlays. And, you know, maybe it's for them. Maybe they work their way up in a more sophisticated betting or whatever. Maybe they don't. But, like, the kinds of guys that move the kind of money that they would pay for someone to shave a point or to call a foul or whatever, those guys are all – they've been betting all this time. They're betting offshore. Those, you know, the the the, the kinds of, like, uh, the guys that, ha- that that it's in their interest to do that were already betting big sums of money. The 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 idea that like now that we add a bunch of new ten dollar parlay betters to the pool now somebody's going to cheat that's stupid I mean those aren't the people that they don't have the kind of scratch to pay somebody to cheat anyway right so this is that's that's kind of how I feel about it is that people that make a lot of money betting on sports have been making a lot of a lot of money betting on sports forever so if there was cheating before they'll be cheating going forward but I don't think that legalizing sports betting creates new opportunities for cheating. If anything, it brings more regulation and it brings more eyes on the, you know what I mean? So the integrity fee is, is calling those integrity fees. That's a misnomer. They just call it that to make it sound good. It's just a tax that we're paying to the NFL and the NBA. That's all it is, right? Is that they're going to get their piece of the pie or whatever. Um, but, but to answer your question more directly about the future of sports betting, you know, I don't know. I think that I would think that if they're smart, they're going to figure out how to do with, sports betting what poker was able to do with poker during its height during its high point and that is to create content that's compelling to people where we can watch people gamble and learn how to gamble from watching to do it i mean what what helped poker what aided poker was that watching poker tournaments with whole cards on the screen both allowed us to learn the game mm-hmm. but it also created celebrity it turned it turned it made those players into celebrities right yeah, yeah. and so not only did i learn the game i was able to root for those folks that has to happen in sports betting i think that sports betting sports books are not they're they're so busy kicking all the winning players out when if i was running a sports book i'd take my winning players and i'd i'd put a little you know points bet logo on them and i'd sponsor them and i'd say 
you're going to be the face of this. You know what I mean? I'd make them into stars because that's what's going to create, that's what's going to get guys like me and you to want to take it more seriously is, is to see the examples of people who are able to do it successfully and try to learn from them and emulate them and want to be more like that, right? But instead, we uh, professional sports players in America are most largely anonymous. They have to keep their identity secret because they don't want to get kicked out of their outs. They don't want places that take their bets to stop taking their bets. So they don't want their name out there, right? Mm. The most successful sports. Now that's backwards, right? So like we need to, we need to turn them into stars. And if the sports books do that, they figure out how to like really make betting on sports into content, they'll create a lot more sports betters. I also think the future to tie into what you just said now is peer to peer betting, right? Like you mentioned the world series mm -hmm. of poker at its core, it's peer to peer betting. I'm trying to take David's money. He's trying to take my money. We're trying to take Bob's money. I think if you see more things spotlighted, like the super contest, right? $1,500 buy-in, there's a $5,000 buy-in. You pick five games against the spread every week. That's something where you're not really competing against a sports book. Sure, you're using their numbers as the measuring stick, yeah. but it's a pool of 1,000 people. I'm trying to beat the other 1,000 Well, there's people. another, there's a version of what you're talking about that actually is something that is done in the UK and it's something people have talked about in the United States and that's called exchange betting. And the way exchange betting works is that, um, and it's more like horse racing, right? Instead of there being a bookmaker who sets a number, there's a marketplace. And so you, you would maybe be a market maker. So say you like the giants or whatever, and say you were willing to take the giants straight up at like, whatever, like you were willing to take it at minus at whatever the game is. You could set a number. You could say, I'll take it at minus minus one ten. Mm. Well, if I, you know, if I wanted to, uh, fade that number and take plus plus one ten, then I would take your bet on the marketplace. Now someone else may come in and want a different number. And, and, and it's all about, Hey, you, a market maker setting a number and then, putting it on the website rather than someone else coming along and saying, I'll take that bet. It operates the way exchanges work, stock exchanges or whatever. And betting can work this way. And in some ways it's the purest form, right? Like I was saying before about horse racing, because like for every market maker, for every number that you create, there's someone else out there that will take that bet and you have a contract with that better. It's like we found each other and we have a bet. Um, and the exchange just sort of takes a percentage of all these bets, right? So it's sort of like the poker table, the mm -hmm. casino raking the poker game. But the way it was explained to me was that the reason that this model probably won't ever take wing and fly in the United States is that no one will make, be market makers. Because when you're the market maker, when you put your number out first, if you made any mistake, you get sniped out. You know, you get hit by the guys who sit back. And there's such an advantage to being the taker. And there's such a risk to being the maker, that it, will, that it has this chilling effect where you're like, how do you find people who are willing to make be the market maker and put out that risk that they get shot, no matter what kind of like incentives you give them. You have to give them a lot of incentives to do that. And so until somebody figures out how to do that, this model won't take off. But it's, it's, it's how a lot of betting works in the UK. And I used to bet on this website called World Sports Exchange back in the early days of sports betting on the internet. And I found it incredibly fun. You know, I thought the numbers are constantly moving. You could live bet a game this way. And the the numbers because it's like a live market kind of like a stock market they're just constantly moving and you just wait for the number to hit what you want it to hit and then you take it it feels a lot more like um trading like stock trading than it does sports betting and it's there's a lot of adrenaline it was a really exciting experience but um, hopefully they'll figure out a way to do that in the united states and if they did i think that could be the future of sports betting and it solves this problem that you're articulating which is um that um you don't have this bookmaker in the middle who is um, in between? You don't have a bookmaker that you're betting with. You have a bookmaker in the middle who's raking a little piece, but has no interest in who wins or loses that bet. They, he doesn't care. 
whether right. you win or lose, because he's just taking his piece no matter what. You know, that could solve a big problem. It's a, it's a very similar model to what Daily Fantasy is. Daily yeah. Fantasy, there's a big rake from the companies, a ridiculous rake, depending on what site you're on. But also, DraftKings doesn't care who wins in first place because they do a gu- guaranteed prize pool. Say they have 100,000 spots, right? They'll pay out 80% of that. Yeah. And then the rest is what they're raking. Right. In. No, you've correctly identified what the biggest problem is with the with the sports betting marketplace, and that's that um, that the bookmakers often take a risk because they don't get balanced action. Everybody may bet the same side, and now suddenly, you know, and the bookmaker doesn't like winning players for the same reason. The reason winning players get kicked out and get banned is because the bookmaker is betting with us. This idea that there's even money on both sides and the bookmaker gets their big is bullshit. Like that's that almost never happens. Mm. Except maybe the Super Bowl, right? Almost always the bookmaker is heavier on one side or the other. They always have a position. They always have something that they need. Yeah, you'll hear game. things like buzzwords like, oh, the books need yes. the Cowboys. So we are against the books. Right. And we're not against each other. We're against the books. And that's a problem because the bookmaker sets the numbers, makes the decisions. They're the, they're the house. And so because we're betting against the house, just like with Blackjack or whatever, they can decide that if they think you're too good, they won't take your action. And so now you're 86, right? You, you don't get to bet anymore. That's a problem because then nobody can win. We can only continue to play if we lose. And so that, I think, is really the, um, the fatal flaw in the, the model, you know, uh, extrapolated out to like it's, you know, it's is that we're up against the books. If we could figure out a way where it's we're up against each other and the book gets paid no matter what, yeah, that's the purest way to do it. It's just like I said before, how do you get people to hang more? This is like the only way I bet on sports anymore is cross booking with my friends. I probably shouldn't admit that. But like, you know, I don't I will only bet. By crossbooking my friends and, you know, me and my friends, I have this group of friends and we bet on games and I just say like, look, I'll take whatever side. I don't care. Like you, you can, you can pick which side you want, but because you pick, I get the better number, right? Like mm. I, I'm going to get 11 and you're going to get 10 if you pick. Like that's kind of the, and that makes it more fun for me because like, you know, if, as long as I'm giving everybody action, it doesn't matter what everybody else's opinion is. They're going to bet for me but they got to give me a better number. So that's kind of how only gambling I do on sports anymore is cross booking with my friends. And it's more fun for me that way because we all know each other. You know what I mean? Like it's like, yeah, it's like being in a fantasy league mm-hmm. where, where mm-hmm. your buddies, the camaraderie over there. Yeah. What's your favorite thing to bet on? You know, I love, I love betting on horses and, um, and I like to play, uh, I like to play poker, but I haven't played poker in a long time. You know, I tried during the pandemic. I used to have a regular game, but, uh, they moved it on to um, poker, bro, to one of these apps during the pandemic, and I just didn't like it. You know, I didn't like playing poker on the screen as much, which is weird because I used to play on the internet a lot. But now, to me, at this stage of my life and the age I am now, to me, poker is a game that I enjoy because I like. It's an excuse to sit at a table with other people and shoot the shit. And you know, to me, it's it's like a, it, it occupies a different space in my my life. So, because I couldn't play live poker, I stopped playing during the pandemic, and. Um, and I started betting on sports a lot more during the pandemic and betting on horses because horses kind of kept going through the whole thing, you know. But I grew up around horses. You know, I grew up in Hot Springs, Arkansas, which is what my book is about. And Hot Springs, Arkansas is a horse racing town. And I grew up in a horse racing family. So when I say I grew up around a family of gamblers, you know, there were people that worked in and around that, that world and that industry. So I, that's, the, that's, what, that's my introduction to gambling came through the track. And so I still have a real nostalgic kind of place for it. I don't think I've ever met anyone from Arkansas. So you're the first one. <laughs> I'm the first, yeah. Tell, tell the people a little bit about what, what Vapors is about. Well, the Vapors is a book about Hot Springs, and it's about the history of Hot Springs from the years 1931 to 1968. And the reason those years are important in the history of Hot Springs is because during those years, 
Hot Springs was what we call a wide open gambling town. It was a, the t- Hot Springs had at least a dozen wide open casinos. And I'm not talking about like backroom gambling where they're just open casinos. It was illegal in Arkansas, but they just sort of operated it in defiance of the law, flouted the law, and everybody was paid off, you know, and the all the way up to the governor, everybody was sort of in on it and on the take. And so Hot Springs was really Las Vegas before Las Vegas was Las Vegas. And it was sort of America's gambling capital. And uh, my book tells a story about how it became that and then how it entered into this kind of like weird arms race with Las Vegas after the Cuban Revolution about where would the mob put their gambling money after they after they lost Cuba in the United States. And it could have been Hot Springs, Arkansas instead of Las Vegas, but they lost that war. And there was a lot of crazy shit that happened. Wait, so Vegas could have been in Arkansas? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, if not for in the events of my book, you know, there's there's a sort of an interscene fight that goes on between the mob and these different factions or whatever over where this money was going to end up and what was going to end up happening with, you know, where the future of the mob's gambling operation was going to be in the United States. And yeah, it could have been Hot Springs. It almost was Hot Springs, but there were a few places they got blown up. And there were a few people that got killed and there were a few, you know, um, people got elected to office here that shouldn't have. And all these things kind of created, you know, gave Las Vegas the edge. But yeah, I mean, 19, in 1957, people thought Las Vegas was, people were reading last rights on Las Vegas. I mean, you know, Las Vegas in the 50s, they didn't have a a working sewer. They had one streetlight, they had one paved road, you know. But during that same period of time in in Hot Springs, you know, Hot Springs was like a bustling city it was a it's a national park it was a resort um and it had been that since the it had been that forever it'd been that way for like almost 100 years and there were hotels there was like a hospitality industry there there was a lot of entertainment there it was a city that had received been receiving millions of visitors a year for a long time and it had wide open gambling and las vegas was like the middle of the desert you know, it was a terrible place. People hated going there. There was no air conditioning in cars, if you remember, you know. So this was a, to get there was like a treacherous journey just to get to Vegas. And I'm talking about in 1950, getting to Vegas was a treacherous journey. I mean, even even now, when I remember the first time I went to Vegas, my buddy Joe and I, we get in the cab and we're driving over there. It's about a 20 minute trip just because they got to make that whole round. You know, you're bullshitting with a taxi cab driver. And, oh, where are you guys from? New York, this and that. Oh, the medallion in New York for the cabs and whatever. And then he told me, and it was very eye-opening, but then it makes sense into what you're saying now. Like, it's a desert, right? So Mm -hmm. he told me a lot of the cab drivers out there, they don't own their cabs because every four or five hours, they got to go to, like, the taxi depot and switch cars because the cars overheat. Get too hot. Especially during the summer. Yeah. Dude, it was like 116 degrees, like, dry heat when I first went to Yeah, Vegas. you know, Meyer Lansky was the guy that, like, ran the mobs, like, gambling. You know, they he he was the guy that kind of ran all the mobs' money and stuff, and he... Uh, he hated Vegas. He said it was one of the most miserable places. He hated going there. You know, so he really, you know, was somebody who I think liked Hot Springs, saw it as being more of a place that could have been more like Havana, more like uh, Monte Carlo, which is what I think the mob wanted to create in the United States was their own Monte Carlo, their own place where it could be like a gambling paradise because the gam- gambling was where the mob was making all their money at that time. But Las Vegas had one thing. Gambling was legal. That's the only thing that was different. Everything else sucked about Las Vegas. It was There's no water. I mean, they had, to, they had to move heaven and earth just to figure out how to get water to Las Vegas. But it had legal gambling, and so that was the only advantage it had. And um, and so, you know, and the Teamsters Union was a big part of this because they had the money that was going to fund the construction of casinos, and where were they going to put that money? So my book kind of details this this period of time and this battle that goes on, and it tells it through the, li- the lives of three people. 
one of those people was Oni Madden, who was a New York mobster. He was a British guy who came to the United States and was a big time mobster. He started the Cotton Club. Uh, he used to manage a lot of important boxers and fighters and he was, a he was a big deal. He was one of the top like three mobsters in New York city. He goes to jail for murder. And when he gets out on a deal that they made with the governor, he lambs it. He like leaves to Arkansas and hides out in Arkansas and he kind of becomes the mob's man in Arkansas. Uh, this guy, Dane Harris, who was like a local guy that Oni Madden kind of became his protege that he kind of groomed to become the lead kind of boss gambler of the town. And then my grandmother, Hazel Hill, who was just sort of a regular, you know, she was a teenager who she came to Hot Springs as a teenager and gets married, starts a family, and she makes her living in and around all these clubs, dealing cards, carrying trays, sweeping tables or whatever. And so she's working in these clubs while the time. So it's about my family and the origins of my family, but it's also about this broader story about the what could have been Las Vegas. And um and yeah, the book came out in July. Um and the paperback will come out this July. And um, it's uh, it took me five years to write it, so I really, really? hope that people will uh, check it out. Oh man, I'm gonna link the. Where can they get it? Anywhere. Anywhere. Yeah. So I'm gonna link it in the bio of the episode as well as Gamblers, and also for April every month. I was telling you this during one of the breaks. I do a giveaway or a contest depending on what like is going on with the Patreon. So for the month of April. If you're a Patreon member, you'll be eligible to get a book out to you. On, That's awesome. Uh, on, on behalf of the That's show cool. and you giving me your time and commuting out here and everything you've done for me, I appreciate it, man. So Yeah, I'll sign a book or whatever. For yeah, we'll yeah, do, yeah. We'll I, like I got to get my hands on, on one of them too, man. Because uh, one of my buddies, Greg, he wrote a book. And also my buddy, Gordon, he's a former... Uh, he played for the Chargers briefly training camp. He went to Sacred Hearts University. He was a safety. He was on the podcast too about a year ago. And uh, he wrote a book as well. So it's like, if I know someone that wrote a book, like, that's dope. You know, like, yeah, I, right. I, I can't formulate tweets. People are writing books that I know. So, like, I got to show <laughs> love and support. But, dude, this was fun, man. Thank you for coming by. The The floor is yours. Once again, plug Vapors, plug everything, the podcast. Just tell people where they can find you. Well, I'm on the web at DavidHillOnline.com. I'm on Twitter at DaveHill77. What's and, 77 uh, about? That's when I was born. Oh, sure. I'm an old man. And uh, I was born... Uh, July thirteenth, seventy seven. I think that says a lot about me being a gambler because I got three sevens and a, and number thirteen. So uh, some luck and some bad luck. Some good luck and some bad luck. <laughs> That's but, great. But um, Dave Hill seventy seven is my Twitter and um, and the book is called The Vapors. Um, the sub subtitle is um, uh, Southern Family, the New York Bob, and the Rise and Fall of Hot Springs, America's Forgotten Capital of Ice, which is a long subtitle, but that's how SEO works, I guess. And uh, folks can get that anywhere. I mean, you can get it at Amazon. You can get it at a local bookstore. I hope folks will support their local bookstores if they can, because they're all struggling right now. Um, but yeah, check out The Vapors. And it comes out in paperback. If people prefer the paperback, it comes out this July, so you can pre-order the paperback now. And then I'm, I'm the host of the show Gamblers on the Ringer Podcast Network. Um, and uh, people who obviously like podcasts and like your show, I think they'd like Gamblers. It's We had seven episodes. We had six. We did a bonus episode just this year about uh, the GameStop stuff with the stocks and everything. And uh, I'd love it if people would check that out and give our show a listen. And maybe if we do a season two, um, we can do an episode on uh, on you, Nick. We'll do. Oh, don't gas you. me, bro. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in already. I'm in already. But once again, I really love that podcast because I, I like that idea of the, the narrating stuff. I thought it was super dope. Uh, Blue Wire does one, American Prodigy as well. They had Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated. Oh, yeah, about He did the one on Freddie Adu. Yeah. And I believe there's one, another one coming out soon, very soon. 
Um, I'm not really sure who it's on, but those are. I, I think that's a new niche that people are diving into the narrating stuff, and, mm-hmm. and it's dope. And once again, man, uh, thank you for stopping by. Uh, we're gonna do a six pack after, not of beer, but a six pack, which is for the Patreon. So you guys can go check that out. Veterans Minimum on all social media outlets. Patreon.com/slash Veterans Minimum, and we'll catch you guys next time. This dog off the leash and is ready to kill. kill. Homie, go finish your meal. I'm coming for real. Taking that food right off of your grill. Nikki too ill. Can't let a drop of me spill. Clogging the lane. I'm feeling the strain. I'm here for the spot to be filled. Not to be cocky, but all of you watching while I'm in the cup paying property bills. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.